Emotions, love, pride, hate, fear. Have you no emotions, sir? Come to Mondas and you will have no need of emotions. You will become like us. Like you? We have freedom from disease, protection against heat and cold, true mastery. Do you prefer to die in misery? And coming up in this exciting episode, we're talking about the 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 silver guys, cybernauts, cyber cybermen, cybermen. We're talking about the cybermen. I remember them. All that and more in this exciting episode of Doctor Who and the Complete Menagerie. Almost stole my line. Welcome to Doctor Who and the Complete Menagerie, a podcast. <laughs> Shut up! A podcast dedicated to all things Doctor <laughs> Who. My name is Sam. I'm Greg. I'm Charlie. And in this exciting episode, we will talk about, as you heard, Cybermen. Before we get any further, we're going to see the line, and it's the first line breaking his line virginity. Oh, <laughs> right here we go. This is, in my mind, quite an easy one. Okay, we'll see. Is it yeah. from Doctor Who? It's from Doctor Who. Oh, I've seen that. Yes, good. And the line is as follows: Doctor. Our races have become tired, and defeat, our seed is thin. We must hand the baton of progress to others. Our seed is thin? Hmm. Hmm. That doesn't sound good. We must need to go to the fertility clinic for that. Our seed is thin. Knowing Charlie, he's probably Mm. probably done a hoodwinkers here, and he's probably selected a, a McCoy. Hmm. It's not McCoy. Oh! We've gone through all, almost <laughs> all of the Doctor Who. Come on, come on. We've not got the right one. No. It's, it's not um, Patrick Troughton. No. It's a colour episode. Ah! It's a colour episode. Okay, Tom Baker. No. Oh, Pat... D- Davo. It's 80s. Peter oh, Davidson. It's no. Colin Baker. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, oh Christ on earth. Round the oh, houses. Yeah. Yeah. Well done, well done. This is Colin Baker. Our seed is thin. Season 22. Colin Baker's seed is thin. Mm. <laughs> Pat on of progress. It's not a very good line. Is it time lash? I think it's a great line. No. Oh, can we just leave it for a while? Yeah, let's yeah. mould that one. Then I'll come back to Let our listeners uh, see if they can come mm. on before we get to the end of the episode. So, oh God. This is our new format, so it's the same as the old fat format, it's just shorter. The old, so, fat, <laughs> the old fat format? What was the old fat format? The old fat format was ever. So our new format is much shorter, uh, so you get more episodes, um, but you know they're, they're not as long. Um, so today we're talking about two, but well, we've got two magazine elements. Today. That isn't everything. I like it. In this episode, <laughs> yes. This very episode that you're listening to this one right today. Here. I've been completely derailed. I was... Our listeners are listening to the episode today. Yes, they are. For them. Because time is relative. <laughs> oh, shush. <laughs> so you're already adopting the Tom I know. <laughs> What are we talking about? You heard rightly earlier, we are talking about those silver fiends of the Cybermen. And we're going to pop right away, without any ado, into the time lash and talking about Cybermen concepts. Oh, but it's all arranged. Maynard and I have important things to discuss. Yes, Doctor. We won't spend too long talking about Cybermen because I think there may be somebody coming up later 
there may be who is a little bit more an expert than we are. Exciting. Yes, he, you know, really has a handle on, on the cyber helmet. I oh, I, I like what you did there. Two handles. <laughs> <laughs> but Cybermen, it's, it's something that we've never really spoken about in previous episodes of Doctor Who and the Complete Menagerie almost because mm. we've, we've talked about... Mm. Uh, Katie Manning, we've talked about Richard Franklin, we've talked about Roger Moore. Roger Moore. Yeah, well, I never quite understood why, why they took the piss out of me for wearing a safari suit. They were all great, they were all great looking. I mean, you go to South Africa and everybody wears a safari suit. Or Robert Mugabe. Uh, <laughs> no, he wears a collar and tie, that arsehole. We've talked about many things, but we've not spoken about the Cybermen. Why is that? <laughs> I think we left it. And we, th- we, will, we will tackle this when we've got more scope and scale. So this is part of actually a mini-series within a series. Uh, this is part one of our cyber series of specials. And we'll so we're be- starting at part one? We're starting at part one. We're starting will at the beginning. Will there be other parts? There will be more parts. Right. Cyber parts. Okay. Spare parts. Oh, I like what you did. Silver parts. Oh. Private parts. Spare <laughs> <laughs> parts. <laughs> part one. Part one. We need a part. 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 How, how many parts do we expect to... Uh, There's going to be five Receive. Five. Five parts. Receive our parts. So, in the next part, which is not the next episode, we're talking about Cybermen in the 60s, but we're just talking about the complete concept of the Cybermen. And, you know, I was thinking about Cybermen the other day when I was in the bath, and I thought, do you know, Cybermen, for me, never lived up to their full potential in the series, and it was always in the books where they got a bit more interesting. Now, we'll be touching on that later later on as well, won't we? We'll be talking about a few of the books. But, mm, thinking, the Cybermen seem to have been actually a precursor to so many other big concepts that have been seen in other movies and TV shows. For one, mm. the stands out is the Borg in Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, yes, that was a Cyberman ripoff, wasn't it? But I, totally. It wasn't part of it, though, that they couldn't, they couldn't really, on a Saturday tea time, delve too much into the very nature of the Cybermen, because yeah. it's, it's pretty horrific. Well, explain this, because... You know, what is the actual concept of the Cybermen, Greg? Well, your understanding of it. Well, they, they were a, a, a human-ish, or, or indeed human, um, race mm. on Earth's twin planet, uh, who gradually, for reasons of um, survival, started to uh, supplement their organic parts with um, cybernetic parts until yeah, you, you, you sort of question where there must reach a tipping point where something tips over into being something that it's not in its origins. There's that interesting philosophical question, isn't there? If you, if you um, have an old uh, uh, sea vessel, like a, a ship that's made of a thousand planks of wood, mm. and it's, uh, it drives through the sea hard, and the elements bash against it. So every time it goes into port, you have to replace a piece of damaged or aged wood mm. and every single time it reaches port the one piece that's changed it's always a different piece so after a thousand voyages and every single piece of wood has been changed is it still the same ship that set out and if not at what point was that was that crossover it's a bit like the Rue Betts mm. and the good example of that is that we have a band which sets off 
mm. with a lineup, and yeah. they start dying or being sacked or emigrating or whatever. Yes. And they get kept being replaced, and eventually you've got yes. a band, and there's no original members in that band. Is it yes. still the same entity as it was yes. back at the start? Our so, listeners are thinking yeah. of that too, you know, because we, we, we've lost a limb. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are we still the complete menagerie almost? But we've replaced the limb with something stronger and more versatile. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, more reliable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. He's addressed uh, the balance. Well, you've got, you've got to apply the same to a football team, couldn't yeah. you? I mean, um, is Everton Football Club still the same club that was formed in 1878? Hmm. Nobody involved is still around. Hmm. They don't play at the same grounds, you know. Really. Doctor Who itself as a concept. Is yeah, Doctor Who still yeah. Doctor Who? Because it's changed so much. Bits have been replaced. So the Cybermen take this into a... Oh, they, they, they fundamentally change the, the, the core nature of their being, don't they? Yeah. But they create something that goes in its place. Mm. It's a bit like the vampires in I Am Legend, if anyone's read that, you know, it becomes almost like a subspecies of the, the, the human mm -hmm. race. Yeah, yeah. Um, profound, disturbing concept. Is that similar to The Walking Dead? Yes. Well, it's a human being mm. in aspect alone, but not really human in any other respect. It's interesting, actually, because I always thought the Cybermen are like zombies because they they are barely human. They don't think for themselves. Mm. They think logically, and zombies do as well because all they want to do is propagate other zombies and eat flesh and just kill people and survive and survive. Yeah, which means eating people's body parts. That's it. Also, the Cybermen want to survive. That's all they want to do. But it's done in a much more cold, calculating way because it's led by a computer. Yeah. Um, so this is an interesting concept, isn't it? It's very much a concept of the '60s, where technology was racing apace. Um, you know, we, at that point there was a space race with NASA. Computers were becoming much more at the forefront. Are you okay with your bottle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've got, I've got the top. You're yeah, yeah. struggling a little. <laughs> you see, now if you were David Banks, you'd have just opened that with your own hands. We've got hugely uh, enlarged digits here, fingers. Why, why, why are we mentioning David Banks? Uh, so I can't imagine. Is it because it's a Banks bitter? Oh, uh, it isn't actually. No, it's. Um, it's uh, Braxbeer, Oxford Gold. But wouldn't David Banks be an amazing person to have on the podcast with all his knowledge and being throughout Perfect. 80s Doctor Who? If only we, if only we could get a guest star like that. What I did is I went back in time, mm. as we are wont to do. Doctor Who does that. He does, he does. In his TARDIS. In his TARDIS. Uh, yes, he well done, Greg. Yeah. And I, um, I picked out off the shelf my DVD mm. of... Doctor Who and the Tenth Planet. Oh, yes. I came downstairs, I put it into the player. You popped it in? I popped it in, and then I popped the disc in as well. <laughs> <laughs> Pressed play, and do you know something? I've forgotten how much I enjoyed watching Doctor Who. It'd been a long time, and I was watching... Never. I know! Episode one, fantastic. And it's got that wonderful gentleman in, what's his name, who plays Cutler. Is it Cutler? Oh, Bob Beatty. Beatty. Bob Beatty. Right, yeah. yeah, fantastic mm. actor. He's basically the leading man in this show. I was quite surprised. Billy yeah. Hartnell's barely in it. Um, and even the companions are in the background, aren't they? Ben and Polly. Then you made it. The rocket hasn't gone off. It didn't work. Now we've all got a chance of life. Your Cybermen friends may have a chance of life, but not you, Cybermen. Nor that old man. Now go get him up here. But he's ill. He's going to get worse. It's the only one, for me, which in the 60s properly addresses the concept. Mm. And this is the issue I have. And I don't think we ever really get back to the concept again. 
in the whole run of Doctor Who. It's kind of like, Tenth Planet, here is what they are. We are called Cybermen. Yes, Cybermen. We were exactly like you once, but our cybernetic scientists realized that our race was getting weak. Weak? How? Our lifespan was getting shorter, so our scientists and doctors devised spare parts for our bodies until we could be almost completely replaced. That means you're not like us. You're robots. Our brains are just like yours, except that certain weaknesses have been removed. Weaknesses? What weaknesses? You call them emotions, do you not? But that's terrible. You, you mean you wouldn't care about someone in pain? There would be no need. We do not feel pain. Do you think the concept was delivered in the right way? No. Standing there by the exit going, Hello, we are sad man, this is what we do, this is where we come from. <laughs> so like literally forty minutes in it, just standing in the same spot saying just giving info dump about who the hell they are. Yes. Yeah. And the whole story I quite like it. I, I, I didn't say any news, I did watch it again. But it is the characters are in the same chairs throughout mm. most of it. You know, they yeah. don't really move very no, much. It's very static. Around the, the set mm. and it's very much thought this is what who we are this is why, why we're here mm. and then nothing else happens other than they're then killed yeah and then there's the bit with the um, uh, cut of sun in orbit which is a nice moment oh, it's it a is. bit of emotional engagement it underlines very nicely the whole point they're making is that, that, that emotions are what humans are all about yeah um, but apart from the Cybermen arrive they tell everyone who they are they then die there's not much interaction between them and the plot. No. One thing that really struck me, and I think this is what they do now if they were making it on television, or if it was being done in a better way, they would have had a character, maybe Cutler actually, uh, just to give you an example of what Cybermen were and what they became, and one of the key members of that cast should have undergone a conversion to demonstrate mm. the whole the whole fundamental uh, concept. Well, you had it later with Toberman in Tomb of the Cyber. He's partially converted. It's, but again, it's very underwritten. And then with Maurice Colborne in uh, Attack of the Cyber. It's very thin, but I think it could have been uh, maybe too strong for Saturday Tea Time. Mm. Cutler could have been killed. His body could have been pulled away. And then the Cybermen recreated him as a Cyberman. And he would have then entered again playing Cutler, but as a Cyberman. Do I think that is last too strong? You know Do you what think? I mean? it, yeah. It's one thing to sort of say what these concepts are, and it's another thing, thing to show it. Like, I mean, I've been re-watching uh, The World at War uh -huh. on, on Blu-ray, and it's shocking, the, the fudges that they show of charred bodies and so on. I mean, that, that's not the kind of thing that you would show to a kid in a classroom trying to explain the Second World War, but to actually be confronted with that horror, mm -hmm. still, even with the passage of time, even though this is you know, something you consider ancient history, well, not ancient history, but... 20th century history that um, gosh it has the power to, to, to bring you up sure. mm. but you wouldn't have had that would you it wouldn't be on screen it would be off screen it would have come on as Cybermen <clears throat> and it's fiction is all about mm. show don't tell yeah. Mm. Yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It. so I think mm. that would have worked quite nicely yeah it would have been a demonstration of the process which I think was lacking because as you said the worst thing is to tell people what, what's been going on that's what the Cybermen do mm. we're doing this we're doing that yeah. It's like, okay, I can't really engage with any of these Cybermen because I don't know what they used to be. 
Whereas if you actually demonstrate that process, and you, I think the new series, I hate to say that, I think the new series has tried to do that, hasn't it? It's actually showed characters changing from being a key character then to being something else. Yeah. A trick was missed there. Mm. And that's what you would have done, I think, mm. if, it was, if you had the freedom to do it. And maybe it was the tea time element. And I think that's the problem with the Cybermen in, gem in general, is that the, the concept is so horrific you can't present it wholesale in the tea time environment. It's just too strong. The Daleks mm. are just bubbly little mutants. There's nothing too close to truth with it. The Cybermen really are a concept which are just round the corner. It's where mm. medi uh, medicine and mm. assistive aids have gone a step too far. Yeah. I mean, I think the ideologies behind both the Cybermen and the Daleks uh, is strong and comes out, and mm. particularly in Genesis of the Daleks. Yes. Obviously. Yeah. The, the, the whole kind of concept of the master race eugenics uh, against undesirables and so on which is a consequence of the politics of, of the Khaleds and yeah. Thals whereas you do get an, an impression with the Cybermen that they probably started out with good intentions but it completely spiralled out of control yeah, and that's more worrying yeah it is that the fear yeah. lies in that when do you stop from having a cochlear implant to having mm. assistive aids in your eyes to having replacement legs before heart and lung machine built in and then if you have mental illnesses certain implants in your brain to make mm. sure you don't feel those emotions anymore well, well how far does it go the road to hell is paved with good intentions isn't it mm. Like, mm. but you, you introduce something that's new you've no idea what the consequences are going to be I mean how could you know you can't see the future mm. So, yeah, even something like um, the mobile phone, like an iPhone with internet access and so on, has totally changed the way that families interact with each other. And we're only beginning to sort of appreciate the, the differences that that can make, with both positive and negative. Mm. You know, technology is a, a, a great thing. And it's also, it is a thing. It's not going to go away. So we have to, to deal with it. But we just have to sort of recognise and, and see what those consequences are and some of them are very very negative and um, you know we're seeing that today with increase in mental health issues amongst younger people and so on uh, who are cyber bullied there was no yes. cyber bullying when I was a kid no you know no, no one dressed up as a cyberman and beat me up which is what I think cyber bullying is it was good old fashioned face to face bullying wasn't it yeah it was old it was. school bullying yeah but you could go home and stick on Doctor Who and forget about it. Yeah. Whereas now they go home and people are calling them names on, on Facebook. Mm. And they can't forget about it. It's a different kind of cyber um, element, if for want of a better word, isn't it? Because mm. cyber and uh, cybernetics years ago used to literally mean the implantation of mm. mechanical devices into organic matter. But now students and young people are, are not plugged in physically. They're plugged in mentally. Yeah. To, yeah, yeah. to uh, digital resources uh, mm. and in their very bedrooms, in their very hands, in their coat pockets, they have this connection to the World Wide Web. That is their assistive aid, as opposed to something being physical. Mm. It's actually a, a mental engagement with technology, which is a completely different horror. It's not body horror. Mm. It's not body horror. It's, it's data horror. That data mm. can trace you back home, that that data can then bully you in your own bed. Yeah, you need the, the old buggers, don't you, that, <laughs> that remember the, old, the good old days. Ah. Like we do, we remember life as adults before the internet yeah. before the interweb before social media yeah. so yeah. we can see more clearly whereas a kid now who's 15 doesn't have that same perception 
because they've never known anything different. No. So they might know something is not right within themselves, but they 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 don't have the that wider view of of, um, of why why these why these things are yes problematic. Well, if you're born so into you, a technology, it's just normal. Mm. So in, in relating that back yeah. to the Cybermen, it's like. The, 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 there might have been that tipping point I was talking about before where there were people who were uh, cybernetic and had arms and limbs you know my, my father has two artificial knees yeah. and often jokes that he's part Cyberman which is partially funny but also partially true but where that tipping point comes where you lose yeah. what you were and you've become something else and yeah. there's no longer any watcher or gatekeeper yes. to, to say don't go over this bridge. It's a very it's this passive engagement as well. You know, yeah. you say yes, I'll I'll have the operation because that's what I've been recommended to do. I mean, the three of us are sat around this table now, looking like Cybermen. We've got headsets on. <laughs> it's just second nature to pop these things on. Yeah. You know, no one said, "Do I need to wear these? Do I need to wear these for the podcast?" Well, it will assist you in the podcast if you wear them. Okay, I'll pop it mm. on then. You know, we we buy into technology so freely. Uh, when I was working in the schools, which was fairly recently. I used to call mobile phones an extension of students' hands. I would never see kids walking around without the phone in their hands. Yeah. And if they had the option of transferring that to something even more convenient, such as an implant into the eye, which is going to happen at some point where you can surf the web without even touching anything, mm. just seeing it in your own vision, mm. people mm. will buy into that through convenience. But how do you avoid exam cheating and that sort of thing there's no way you can you just turn the wifi off <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The wi and then all the Cybermen fall over well, end of episode it. 4 <laughs> you always have to react to these things once you get to that point and discover that there is a problem yes uh, often it's too late though and I think that's the point about the whole concept of the Cybermen they don't know they're a problem by that time and they can't see that the way they're they're, they're living the way they're propagating their lifestyle choice is an issue yeah, yeah no 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 they can't and that's the fear yeah I mean, it, it, it kind of from my point of view being familiar with stuff like um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for example whereas that would, would be a great thing to have in the future as mm. a guide you can carry around with you and will tell you about anything you want to hear about it's Wikipedia basically mm. and, and what that, what did that become that became something of a very different thing so mm. my, the the, the Concept from 1979 or whenever it was written of that being a useful thing became um, the mobile phone. So mm. kids have got, I said, in bed of an evening with Peter Jones saying mm. they got got a fat arse. You know, that, mm. that's kind of the that's where that concept ended up. But what became what was initially a good idea became something far more pernicious mm. because of human nature. And there's also that thing where. We all fear death quite, quite understandably, because we're all mortal and we all know we will die. We will come a point where we die. So this is the great appeal of um, the cyber process: yeah. is to say, have no fear. Uh, I can take away your worst fears. You can have the life you want. Well, of course, you can't without fundamentally uh, cha changing, because. Mm -hmm life as we know it would not be the same, would not be as heightened it wouldn't be as an emotional experience if you didn't know that it was going to end and that becomes more pressing I think the older you get and it's the maturity with which you view the human condition and the, the, the knowledge of your um, you know, self complete oblivion 
at some point. And, you know, certainly people have beliefs in the afterlife and so on. That's not problematic. That's consoling to, to, to people who hold those beliefs. But nevertheless, they still know that even at the point that they die, they will completely change. Whereas the idea of the Cybermen is you go on, you go on, you go on. I think there's also something equally sinister about that because absolutely, as you get older, you want to sustain your life as long as possible mm. by whatever means before you think, I'm done now. Yeah. But there's also something quite chilling about the Cybermen, which ties in something to some politics, which is becoming uniform and the same as everybody else. Oh, God, Jesus, yeah. And mobile phones are a good example if you don't have the latest model you're out of the group mm. if you think of that in terms of assistive aids where you have so many components bolted to you there comes a point where you all become the same as each other and Cybermen are the best example because they're absolutely identical Yes, it, you don't really have more of a balanced social community than the cyber race because they are they're neither male nor female. They're neither more intelligent or less intelligent. They are all exactly the same. But surely, Sam, you've just described a sort of... Oh, God. <laughs> dare, dare I say this? <laughs> a kind of, sort of leftist socialist utopia. Yeah. Where yes. everybody agrees with everybody else and thinks the same thing. All these other things, there are no differences. There's total uh, agreement about things. Mm. And that is chilling because mm. you lose identity as soon as that happens. And that's the worst thing about the Cybermen is they don't have any identity whatsoever. If you're happy to give up all of your quirks mm. because you find them embarrassing or other people don't like them just to conform, mm. that's the Cybermen ideology. It's not about life, it's about conformity. Yes. It's so, having the same boots. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which they literally do. Evelyn Wars, Brighthead revisited where Lord Marchmain is on his deathbed. And Charles Ryder says to the doctor, uh, the, as in the physician, not, not Doctor Who, he has a great will to live, doesn't he? And mm. the doctor replies to him, would you say that? I'd say it's more a terrible fear of dying. Mm. So, are the Daleks a wonderful analogy of Nazis? And are the Cybermen a wonderful analogy of communism gone wrong? Communism gone right, I would say. Job Jesky will love the isn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they have become they have become this like endless marching kind of people compare the Cybermen to Nazis. I think that's wrong. I think they're closer to North Korea. Mm. If who you are actually, communists. Who are radical communists. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're, they're two extremes of, the, of, yeah. of, of two completely different ideologies which have come full circle. Two totally things. chilling. E equally chilling. Equally chilling ideologies. That we live through in the 20th century. Yeah. Some people can't let them go. You must be like me. You must think. To be accepted. Yes. To have the right view. My view is the right way. My way is the right way. So mm. you must join me mm. and become part of the commune. Am I doing you a favour? Yes. Look, you know, I mean, uh, they say this to Lytton in Attack of the Cybermen, don't they? Yeah. And he says, no, I, I, I will serve you as I am. Oh, but we could do so much more. We could make you like us. How could you not want to buy into this? Yeah. Yeah. You must come and live with us. You will become like us. I was quite amused at the fact that they had names. 
Yeah. Ah, yes. Which is never ever again. No. Yeah. Kerrang was one of them. <laughs> Later, a music magazine. <laughs> I've, got, I've got written down here. There's, there's, there's Crail, Talon, Shav, Jarl, Krang, Gurn, Gerald, Bat, <laughs> Bong, and Woodbine. There's a Gerald. Yep. Oh, yeah. The names yeah. are terrible, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Mm. But it's early days. They're, they're feeling around for the concept, aren't they? And obviously, they were a great hit, uh, and later became, you know, the. Probably the second staple monster in Doctor Who, and a cheaper one to get back in by all by all accounts. But who do you thank for that? Because Kit Pedler's original idea was it should be a race of star monks. Yes, I mean, a race of star monks, oh. like like religious men in habits <sighs> on Mondas. Right. But was told by Ennis Lloyd that isn't going to work. Yeah. Try again, and he came back with the idea of the Sandman. So he was told ah. to rethink it, and this is what he came back to us with, with reference to the. Mm. Um, so you Robert Wiener stuff. The shit so, idea. Let's talk about yes. you think it came yeah. back with a rather that good is, one. That is, that is, you know, shit house. Come back and try again. <laughs> <laughs> and he came back and said, well, I've got an idea, but I can't write it. So Joe Davis was asked to step mm. in, and that's why they became a partnership. Which one of them was the... It was Kit Peddler, wasn't it, who was the big scientist? Kit had the um, the idea. He was he the idea as well. Because I think he was a scientist. I think he was a, a doctor. He was an ophthalmologist. Yeah. Well, the Serbmen are a diaspora. You know, They are people without a home or trying to find a home. Mm. The question is, is that supposed to be uh, representative of a particular diaspora in the real world? Is it the Jews? Is mm. it the um, Native American Indians? Who is it supposed to be? Do we mm. think that they were trying to... Is it an image for you know, the real world and, and, a, and a tribe of people of, of a similar kind of uh, um, situation? Mm. I don't know whether or not it's any particular... Well, I think they're, explicit, they're explicitly word. referred to as cyber nomads they, yeah. in David Banks's um, History of the Cybermen, which is a book... Uh, well worth looking at, which we will be talking about later on in the series. Mm. Uh, but cyber cyber nomads, I mean, that could be a whole trope Absolutely. Of, of cultural references there. Is the inference supposed to be that we're supposed to have some pity for the cyber? I think so, yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Initially. All, they're victims. All, yeah. all diasporas are viewed in Desperate people. Uh, both ways, aren't they? Mm. As a pest. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yes, yeah. as pests uh, as well. Very, very interesting. You mentioned the Jews. Um, who've had more than one diaspora, of course. Mm. Uh, many. One even, you know, fairly recently. But let's not get into that, because mm. that's a whole can of worms. Absolutely. Well, there's also the issue of the... Well, what about the voices? What's our view of the voices? I find them quite difficult to, to, to stomach for 90 I, minutes. I really, really like them. Yeah. And I, th- I don't know if it's because they're completely unique and we, ne- we never get them again. Mm. But there is something absolutely chilling about them. Mondas will not burn up. Take the old man up to the space club. You will regret this. Now, we give you three minutes to stop using the warhead. If you fail, you will never see your friends again. It's completely completely alien in terms of their rhythm and the nuances of language. The pauses are all over the place. A bit silly, though, aren't they? Well, to the point where the actors... A bit confused where they're supposed to be coming in on their lines, particularly mm. Bill Hartnell, who ends up re- talking through half the lines of the Cybermen when they're going, We will. And then he starts firing off, I've not finished my line yet. <laughs> <laughs> but it's wonderful. It, mm. I, I think it's so original. Um, I can see why they didn't carry it forward after mm. that because 
You can't imagine the Tenth Planet Cybermen in any other Cyberman story, frankly, because no, they really just wouldn't can't. work. Mm. But in that story and in that intense environment, in that very small space, they are so different to all the dullness that's going around them. Mm. You know, boring men with beards looking into monitors. They're, they are quite exciting, and I think it does work on an audio level. It yeah. gives it some vibrancy. Yeah, yeah. It has that the, the, the human hand and also the the the, um, the regret. Uh, of Michael Cray's killing mm. Cyberman, things like that. They're not treated as purely mechanical. No. They are treated as um, living sentient beings. That's done very well, I think. Michael mm. Cray's, uh, who is himself a soldier of, 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 of sorts, Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Being upset and having to kill somebody, which I think is mm. perhaps is his first. His first uh, score, I don't know in that respect, but he, yeah. that's handled very nicely. Feeling, I do not understand that word. Emotions, love, pride, hate, fear. Have you no emotions, sir? Come to Mondas and you will have no need of emotions. You will become like us. Emotions, love, pride, hate, fear. Mild embarrassment, <laughs> impotent middle-class frustration, <laughs> raging sexual tension. <laughs> Have you no emotions, sir? <laughs> oh, very good. I think that's our first Hartnell impersonation. <laughs> well oh. done. Excellent. Excellent. This is just an introduction. We've just started talking about Cybermen here, and we're going to talk a lot more in future episodes. Mm. Um, so we're going to leave that there for now. To drill down into, isn't it? Not there to is... unpack. Try <laughs> being hunted. The bushes straight ahead. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> I'm going to segue now into our next segment of this episode, oh, yes. which is the mind probe. Well, I think we've already hinted in this episode uh, who we've managed to uh, get involved, which is an actor who uh, starred in Doctor Who uh, on television four times in the 1980s. Uh, he uh, appeared on screen with Peter Davison twice with Colin Baker and with Sylvester McCoy. He has worked on stage with other Doctors. He's written Doctor Who books. Um, he's even written in depth about the whole mythology of the Cybermen, what the cyber race is and you know where they, where they come from. And he was in a, a stage production with John Pertwee and later Colin Baker called The, the Ultimate Adventure in which he, he played a foe in that and I, I think I know who it is mm. <laughs> Go on then, are there enough clues? Yeah, <laughs> tell us, who's our guest? I think it's the one and the only David Banks Destroy them Destroy them at once You are authorised to the mind probe. What? The mind probe. No, not the mind probe. I, I wonder whether I should have my earphones on as well. Now I'll leave them. <laughs> Maybe look too much like a cyber. <laughs> uh, yes, that's what we, we were worried that you might think that um, I'm taking the Michael, but he's uh, <laughs> sound levels, you see. That's what it is, sound levels. Oh, that's good. Very professional, very good. Yeah, I'm not wearing mine, but... Um, uh, oh, aren't you? <laughs> Ooh, glad you noticed. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you're uh, you're in London at the moment, is that right? Yeah, I am. I'm uh, I'm looking over Regent's Canal at the moment. It's really very nice. Very nice. I hope you've got better weather than we have because it's a bit plumbing miserable. 
well, it's dull, but mm. but it's fine. I, you know, lovely ducks, ducks and coots. I love the coots. They're very energetic. <laughs> I I've studied their sex lives for for generations. <laughs> they have three, three, three generations a year. Anyways. It's good to have a hobby. Uh, <laughs> 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 of course. Yeah, well, you, you, you should publish that research, I think. Do you think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, good to life. Good to life! <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's lovely to have you, because um, you're, you're directing, aren't you? You're, you're, it's um, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, which, yeah. funnily enough, is, is quoted at the beginning of Iceberg, which we'll talk about in a bit. Is, has this poem been with you for a long time, and how did you get into it, and what does it mean to you? Well, why, why are you directing it now? I'm directing it now because of a bizarre sequence of events that I had no control over. Mm. It's just one of those coincidences that you find come up in life. I've, yeah, I've, I've known the poem since 1971, right. when I heard it being read by Alec Guinness on the radio. Mm. Uh, I actually had the good fortune to record it. There was so much I didn't understand about it, but his reading drew you in. Uh, and there were just phrases that kept coming back to me. I mean, obviously, it's a very well-known phrase, but there's still center of the turning world, for example, mm. um, which, you know, captures the imagination, I suppose. But another one, which for a long time I still have, and up to the bottom of it really is, is humility is endless. Humility is endless. Mm. It's those kind of things. That it, you, you know, it's very difficult to talk about a poem of this length, but also of this density. Yeah. It lasts 60 minutes in performance, mm. and it's a personal journey. And I suppose, you know, for me and for, for other people who have have read the poem and been fascinated by it and kept on reading it, it's been personal journeys for them as well. Mm -hmm. um, and all this time later, I, I, in, in between, I, I, 20 years ago or so, I, I thought, well, this would be great to do as a performance. It's very, very rarely done. Um, and so I started learning it myself and I, I learned mm -hmm. it uh, when I was on tour. Um, I don't think it was the ultimate adventure, but it was sort of around that time. Maybe it was mm. that time. And I thought I'd put it on, but then other things came, other work came, and I never got around to doing it. So mm. then 20 years after that, a friend of mine who's running a festival at Norwich, the Hostry Festival, said that he'd been approached by Peter Wilson, who at that time was the CEO of the Theatre Royal at Norwich. Mm -hmm. 
and was also the great producer of you know the second longest play in the West End which is uh, The Woman in Black ah, nice. and uh, his, his production is also um, on from time to time the uh, An Inspector Calls very special production of that mm. he's a producer uh, and he was somebody that I actually met very briefly mm. right at the beginning of my career uh, we're of the same age and he had um, he had come to this play uh, to this poem because uh, his his mother had read it when it first came out it, it it's made up of four poems mm. and the first poem was was published in 1936 and and then then he wrote uh, the second part in 1939 just as the war was starting and people you know, it, it sold on like 12,000 copies, which is quite large for a, for, you know, a, a, um, yeah. a long poem. Yeah. His mother was becoming uh, demented uh, towards ah. the end of her life, and mm. he thought he would read it to her. And he was so surprised by the emotions that it brought up in her yeah. and the absolute lucidity and the memory. That's the power so he, of these things, he simply it? wanted to learn the whole thing and mm. perform it as a way after her death, a way I think of getting it out of his system or something. And so, but he needed somebody who was sympathetic to the poem and you know to the idea of doing it. And so, mm. my friend, who is the artistic director of the Hostry Festival in Norwich, got in touch with me and said, "I think you know you two would be right together." So that's how it came about. We did it at the Hostry Festival. Uh, it, it went down very well. He's done it at one or two other places. The last place was the Royal Academy, actually in London, mm. and that was uh, it was at the invitation of um, Anthony Gormley, you know, the, the the Angel of the North. Um, yes, indeed, this, very, very distinguished artist. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. and uh, he's 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 taken a very great interest in it. We also did it in his house. Uh, say house, his castle, his, I don't know, <laughs> very large house, she was in. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to distinguish guests. That's where I first met um, Margaret Hodge. Right, She's, yes. uh, And so the next performance is going to be the 27th of July at the Holt Festival, mm. which is also in Norfolk. Mm. And Margaret, is going to, Margaret Hodge is going to be doing the question and answer afterwards. At the first performance that we did in Norwich, it was um, um, Melvin Bragg, actually, ah, who came and did the question and answer. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I should say this, but he was—he seemed to be a bit curmudgeonly about, about the poem. Hmm. Um, and he asked some awkward questions. He's very good at that. Ah, yeah. uh, <laughs> made a career of it. Very yeah. much. Um, but strangely, you know, three months later on his programme, in our time, there he was discussing four quartets, and he seemed to like it a lot more oh. by that time. So I think we did him a good turn. Great. Uh, well, yes, and, and Margaret Hodge again, very distinguished. Um, and did you find that uh, Peter Wilson and yourself had a similar concept of the poem? I suppose because I'd, I'd studied the poem and and, and it, I'd thought about it, and you mentioned iceberg themes and and phrases were always circulating in my brain and I was always applying them to different things. I don't think his, um, his connection with the poem was like that. Mm. It was emotional and I, I think if, in our conversations the idea of emotion is going to come up again and again as well as time. And yeah. uh, his, his approach 
was emotional, and that set it apart from many other interpretations of, of this poem, I think, by people. Mm. You listen to uh, Jeremy Irons and uh, Ray Fiennes reading it. Um, even, you know, the, the original that I heard, uh, Alec Guinness, they're all very calm, mm. very actory. Um, and they let you in like that, they let you listen. You listen to T.S. Eliot's, and he's absolutely dry. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's true, and, yeah, he recorded it himself. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he did. Mm. And Peter's, Peter's idea was that this actually is a passionate narrative. Right. This is somebody who is in turmoil, in torment. Mm. And this gets to the heart of the poem. And I thought this was a wonderful way of approaching it, that, mm. that this is a man, he comes on stage, and he's trying to work out um, the things he's done, the wrong things he's done, the things that he's he's guilty about, plagued about. Um, how do you get at that? Uh, time present and time future are both contained in time past. Mm. And time past is present in time future. So if all time is eternally present, so he's bringing all of these uh, uh, ideas that we have about time, if all of that, all of time that we uh, understand is actually only accessible in the present, mm. then all time is uh, unredeemable. We can't do anything about the things that we have done and wished we'd done differently. Yeah. And that's the torment. Mm. And that's what you've got to get at. It's so beautifully put, but it's something we all wrestle with. Yes. Um, and yeah. even understanding time, which is the simplest of concepts, but almost impossible to get your head around. I think it's only when major things change, um, like death of somebody you love, for example, that you, the time really presses quite hard on you, and you start to understand that every single moment is unique, is travelling in one direction. And like I say, it's very simple stuff, but hard to wrap your head around it when you're um, when you you live through time somehow. Does it? it, it I, I think uh, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a kind of it's common perception. Um, Augustine, Saint Augustine. You know, people keep going back to him, and even the modern philosopher, modern philosophers and physicists, Carlos uh, 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 Rovelli. Do you, do you know Carlo Rovelli? He's just written a book called The Order of Time. I haven't read it yet, but mm. I've heard him talk about it. And he, he's saying that um, that Augustine, you know, kind of, of, of got it. We're going back to that understanding because it's quite clear that the time that physicists talk about and, and have marvellous equations that work, mm. um, that's not the time that we experience. And Augustine said it's something like... Um, you know, with um, if if no one asks me, uh, I know what time is. But as soon as I've got to explain it, I haven't got the faintest idea. He said that in Latin, so it would sound better. But you know, he starts to ask what um, what now is basically. Yeah. And ha what duration does it have? Can we measure it and so on? And he argues in a philosophical way that, uh, that and it turns out that now has no time at all there's no duration to time mm. uh, and so then he says well so, so 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 time comes from what is not yet real because in the future mm. happened yet it tra travels through what occupies no space and it, it, it goes away 
bound to uh, what is no longer real. You know, mm. the past, we can't get at it. It's yeah. irredeemable. It is a real mystery. Yeah. Yeah. It goes. It, I mean, it goes to the heart of everything about um, Doctor Who as well. Of course, the the idea well, of time, yeah. time, time travel, and so on. But um, anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll get on well, to that. What, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm hoping that you know, in in our conversation at some point, mm. I can pick your brains about about the time travel that we see in Doctor Who because it's mm. extremely interesting, especially if you compare it to the uh, uh, inadequacy of the. Of, the cyber races understanding of how to travel in time. Uh, yeah, mm. yes, that's true. And that there is also a sort of sense that, like, the three of us time travel just when we're watching Doctor Who because it has that nostalgic quality as well. It takes us yeah. back to, you know, early childhood quite yeah, a lot of the time right. and so on. And um, so you've got the Holt Festival coming up. Do you, is it something you would hope to perhaps um, stage again if, if possible? Oh, I, I think it's up to Peter. Um, mm. I mean, he, he's obviously a very busy man in London now um, sure. with the production, setting up productions and various other things. He's taken over the Arts Theatre in London. And so, you know, that's that's the focus of his attention. But I think it's probably something that he may come keep coming back to. Mm. It's an amazing uh, uh, achievement to learn all of that and then you know, to keep in your mind and then to be able to, to from time to time, every couple of months or so yes um to uh, i think if you left it you know from my own experience if you leave it more than three or four months um it would start to go mm. although there is a difference in the way that you learn lines if you're learning lines of something you're doing night after night you tend to find after about a month or so that goes and after mm. i've had two experiences where i've had to do the same part a year later so we've had, had a, a, there's been a gap of about a year yeah and How is it's that? like learning it again. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas an opera singer learning a part, uh, or you know, pianist learning learning a musical piece, mm. or in this case, somebody who has committed lines of poetry to memory, I think it's a somehow a different um, place, a different kind of memory, which is longer term, stays with you longer. Yes, I think actors have that because they're learning things all the time and um, learning new stuff all the time, and it can stick. I did school plays like when I was 15 and I can still remember Shakespearean monologues and if I try and learn them now I have no chance really. But, mm. but do, you, do you know them now, those that you learned? Uh, I do, I know the ones I learned when I was 15 but I couldn't, I don't think I could learn one now. That's the thing because I think I used my my brain when I was 15 just soaked everything up but it doesn't right. anymore. Yeah. 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 Um, for, 40 next month and it works in a different way but I think for actors sort of retain that which is very exciting for them. Um, Yes, but it's only it's short term, you know, because you, uh, you you're going on to the, learn the next bit. It's it, with opera singers, you do the part, you learn the part, master it, and then then you you can go on. You know, is there a doctor in the house? Is there an opera singer in the house? Yeah. You know, our, our lead lady has <laughs> has gone ill, and somebody will come up and, and sing the role yeah. um, because they they've got that, and mm. it's a different place that you you keep it. I think, um, mm. whereas. Uh, actors go from one part to the other, and very, very seldom do they come back to the same part. Yeah, um, so. but you, you, you don't have to learn lines for um, audio, which you've been doing a bit of. That's my, that's my neat segue into. Very good. Uh, yeah, I was pleased with that. I uh, into in Hour of the Cybermen, which um, you've been recording for Big Finish. We hear, and yes. uh, by the time this goes out, it'll probably be out very, very soon because I think it's coming out at the end of August. Yeah. Um, 
if that's right. So, how did you get involved with that? Yeah, my, my history with Big Finish has been a bit of an odd one because, mm. um, I mean, I think it's a marvellous uh, enterprise and it really sort of carried the torch, didn't it? Yes. For mm. Doctor Who during the Baron years. And I suppose, you know, I met Nick when he was quite quite a young guy he was he was sort of a runner or you know organizer of a of a doctor who event uh in 86 i think it was 85 or 86 met him then and um uh, and then you know got got to know him quite a bit mm. but the next i was uh, well we did we did um down there actually with colin baker um mm. and that was uh and John Ainsworth, who's a producer at Big Finish now, mm. um, and that was Nick who had who'd written Dandere. That must ah. have been early nineties, I suppose. Right. So it, the enterprise was beginning to get ahead uh, of steam, and uh, Nick was very firmly in the centre. Mm. Um, and and so these things were produced. I, I was never approached <laughs> to do anything. Mm. Uh, I didn't really know about it, but I sort of wondered why. Well, then I realized, of course, that Nick was, was, was doing all the impersonations of me, mm. so, uh, of the yes. side yeah. leader, um, which fair enough. And he's very good at it, very good, very funny, mm. very talented, you know, so he does that as well as writing. Um, mm. And I saw him very, very occasionally from time to time. But I did see him mid uh, in uh, 2007 because I was they were doing the Ultimate Adventure, the audio version. That's um, right. Yes. yes. Brought back Colin, and mm. they brought back uh, me, and I think we were the only p people from the original. Ah. So I reprised my Carl. I think we all saw that. Did you? You, you saw that? Didn't you? Yes, I saw it twice. I saw it with Pertwee. I think it was York, and I saw you in Wakefield with Colin Baker. Mm. Right. Yeah. That that was the actual stage thing, and you know. So yeah. in the audio version, I didn't have to wear my string vest. <laughs> well, had you retained it though, just 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 in case? Or? <laughs> all right. My string vest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I used to use it as a colander for some time, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was, a, it was a, um, yeah. Did you did you enjoy playing Carl the Mercenary again? Quite a memorable character. It was very very funny actually. The stage show. I mean, I was only a kid when I saw it, um, but um, yeah, very funny. I remember the audience laughing. There were lots lots of humour for adults, I think, because my dad. <laughs> oh, right. Took yeah. Me. Yeah. Uh, yes. I suppose some of it was intentionally funny. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were some funny events, especially in the first two weeks at Wimbledon. That. Um, mm. They were not meant to be funny, but you know, for example, you know, one TARDIS came flying in while the other TARDIS was flying out. And you mm. saw both TARDISes at the same time. That wasn't meant to happen, <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> but it was funny. And uh, and also, uh, Carl being threatened by the Doctor, uh, who was holding a, you know, one of those fire extinguishers that, that throw out icy foam or something. And for some reason, one night it went off in my face. Oh, and. <laughs> Yeah, and, hmm. and it kind of froze my face, actually, and, and I didn't know what had happened at first, and, and he was bemused as well, hmm. and, and the audience um, probably thought it was part of the show, I don't know, uh, but I managed, you know, he and I managed to improvise something that, that, that uh, made, made a point of the accident. 
Yeah, you can't do another take, can you, and it's live performance? You can't, no. <laughs> but shall we do that one again? <laughs> yeah. David, can I ask, how was it playing the Doctor, as you did on one occasion? Was that, was that um, quite a daunting task for you? <clears throat> yeah, actually, it was two occasions. Oh, two occasions. Mm. Yes, um, just simply because John was exhausted. Uh, he was doing uh, this matinee at the Alexander Theatre in Birmingham, kind of, you know, packed house. And he just didn't come out with any lines. And that was the afternoon, so I took over that, and then I did the, the thing again in the evening. And I was hoping that the next month, next month, yeah, the next week, though, at uh, Bristol, oh, you know, I was raring to go. I got my own doctor costume, you know. I, I, I was understudying it in my contract. So we had rehearsals for it. We had, you know, it was my own Greenpeace-based um, mm, uh, doctor. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And um, because that made sort of sense of what was said in the in the show itself, you know, even back then, you know, eighty nine, mm. Terence Sticks, pick, who's the writer of it, he pick, picked up, that, you know, what was happening, which is that people were concerned about our planet mm. um, in ways that we've continued to be, and more frantically and more intensely, because uh, <laughs> there's been no political will, it seems, not not enough political will. Yeah. We'll, I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to this when we talk about icebergs yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, which yeah, is, it yeah, does, I, yeah. I, I felt but, on that was well ahead of its time. But, um, yeah, um, Colin Baker, I mean, you've worked with him a few times, haven't you? Because um, yeah. this new audio and the ultimate adventure and so on. Um, it, do, you, do you enjoy working with Colin? It's great. He, he's, he's wonderful. Uh, he, he's, he was so... I mean, we kind of welcomed him onto the set mm. in a way because I think was it? Attack was quite an early show, Attack of the Sun. Yes, well, it was only his Attack. second one, I think. Yeah, yes. certainly the second one so was broadcast. There was this sense in which he, you know, he was getting to know the ropes, getting to know people. Um, but you know, as the when you're the doctor, mm. um, you, you're sort of there, the head of the team, and and um, I think David Tennant had made mention of the fact that. You know, that, that's what you go all out to do, to be welcoming to all these new people who come on each, each uh, adventure. Um, and Colin was very much like that. Mm. Oh, um, and he's remained like that. He's, he's incredibly, he's got an incredible sense of justice. Uh, I, know, I know he's had a kind of legal training background. Yeah. But, mm. And that's um, very, it's very comforting. And especially when, so in the ultimate adventure, um, I learned that whatever theatre he does, he always elects to be the equity rep. And the equity rep, which means that you represent the union Mm. um, if there's any dispute with the producers. Right. And his argument was that, you know, usually when I do a show, I'm the person who they need the most. I've got the most clout. I'm the strongest in that sense. Yeah. And therefore, I can make points. If I think they're worth making and they need to be made, I, I'll make them. Hmm. And I, you know, it, it just gives you a clue as to the kind of person he is. Very and it's true, yes. So it was Attack, and then yeah. it, um, oh, well, I only did one with him, didn't I? Attack. attack. Yeah, that's right. Um, but you are also teamed up in this again with Mark Hardy, uh, who plays your, your lieutenant. And I was wondering if you yeah. um, had the you slipped straight back into the rapport that you'd had uh, in the show. 
I think so. It's interesting because we've never been out of touch, Mark and I, oh. since what, 1981, which is when we met, right. to do Earthshock. Full power! We proceed towards the destruction of Earth. Right, all right. Here we go. Our signal has broken through. Excellent. The vault? No leader. The bomb has been deactivated. That can't be. Cyber technology is too advanced for Earthlings. So, but we've never... <laughs> uh, we've never gone over lines again, you know. We've never played Cyber Leader and Cyber Lieutenant. So, that was unusual, you know. And, and the strange thing is, you know, they're talking about trying to pick up lines or the same performance or whatever, you know, sometime after. Well, we're not talking about six months or a year. We're talking about, you know, 37 years. Mm. 37 years. I mean, mm. I, you come to these points in life and you think, oh, where did that go? You know, what happened in the meantime? Yeah. Um, mm. And so that was an interesting aspect. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, of course, the voice that is put on helps. Mm. Um, and in the studio, uh, I actually heard in the cans, because I was kitted up like you two are, I had cans on, and, um, uh, and I heard when I spoke like this, I heard the cyber leader. You know, when I played it first in 1981, I was, I was starting from scratch. I didn't, I hadn't seen, I wasn't able to see Revenge of the Cybermen. Mm. I'd had memories of the first Cybermen, of, of, of which I, you know, I, I still think extremely scary. Um, uh, and that was 66. Mm. Um, but after, you know, I started playing the cyber leader, uh, my interest was piqued in, in this, um, this idea of, of, of humanity mm. being incarcerated in an exoskeleton um, for, for very good reasons. I mean, the the um, Tenth Planet Cybermen explained why they had to do this, and to them, mm. you know, the humanity is 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 you can take it or leave it, really. And they had to leave some of it. Uh, um, they still had their hands. You saw their naked hands. Yes, but um, but they had at least very large and effective pacemakers put in their heart. Um, their lungs replaced or enhanced. Or mm. And uh, and what we got in Earthshock was uh, Eric Sayward's uh, very um, imaginative vision of of these creatures evolving, having evolved over five hundred years. Mm. Um, and of course, I didn't really know any of that then, but I, I, I looked into it, I studied it, and I wrote the book in mm. 88, I think it was, came out in 88. I think we may even have a copy lying around. Ah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Mean, that, that was basically an attempt to establish the whole mythology of the, the Cybermen, wasn't it? So you must have done an awful lot of research and, and background, not just into um, the Doctor Who stories, but into technology and... Um, uh, cybernetics, and very, very much so, mm. and uh, it preceded. Uh, strangely, kind of coincidence, I suppose. But I, I was very interested in, in, in computing technology, what computers may be capable of, um, and the and the very early, well, very early. But it's um, I had read 
a seminal book uh, by Douglas H. Hofstadter mm -hmm. called um, uh, Gödel, Escher, Bach, The Eternal Golden um, Triangle. Um, and that was because he was a thinker about artificial intelligence. Um, and so two years later, you know, strange, two years later, there I was playing somebody who was aided anyway by uh, artificial intelligence, by, by um, an exoskeleton, not just physical, mm. but um, a, 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 a computer aided consciousness. I mean, this thing of if you so yes, and then I got I really into it, and then I I watched all the uh, adventures that I could of the Cybermen in Doctor Who, and I and I realised that there wasn't really a chronological structure, and that I could I could put the pieces in in the kind of order that I thought might be right. Mm. Um, and so you know that was one part of it. One the first part was the concept of Cybermen and and of our idea of. Of humanity and how we change it, and the the godlike powers that we can take on, you know, we're we're absolutely dead in the centre of that now when we're thinking of you know, the fourth industrial revolution. Oh yeah, uh, and and all sorts of occupations that people have 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 had um, mm. being taken over now, on the verge of being taken over by um, kind of some kind of uh, robotized um, version. Yeah, um, using a kind of artificial intelligence. And odd, oddly, um, I suppose a corollary of that is that well, Sam and I both work in education. I was at a conference recently, and they said they estimate something like thirty percent of children who are in school now um, will end up doing jobs that ha haven't been invented yet. Yeah, uh, which is yeah. truly I frightening. I hope they're invented then. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah. Because otherwise, I and mean, you know, we need to. We're, we're Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, that gets us into well, what what responsibility do we have as a society to all of us, as opposed mm. to those people who just make it? And mm. uh, you know, I was just hearing the other day on an analysis program. Uh, it's it's clear now that mental health in places like U.S., U.K., Mexico mm. uh, is is uh, suffering uh, yes. very very greatly compared to those countries which have. Uh, much more equality, uh, Norway, Sweden, mm. and um, and so it seems that financial equality, um, equality of privilege, and so on, mm. does you know it, it's something which we have to pay attention to. You know, we could go down the the cybermen, go, go down the cybermen. You know, they give you equality by by turning by converting you. Mm. <laughs> um, it's not as simple for us. Destroy them! Destroy them at once! Well, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you, uh, Greg, for arranging that interview with David, which we'll be picking up in well, a future I think episode. I think we'll be hearing more. We will, a lot more. We will be hearing a lot more. What a gent. Yes, and interesting to hear about what he's up to at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's going to be in a big Finnish um, Cyberman adventure. He's reprising his role as the cyber leader and also 
Mark Hardy, who plays the Cyber Lieutenant in uh, throughout the 80s, is um, teaming up with him again to play the, the, the Cyber Lieutenant. So the two of them are back together again. It's called The Hour of the Cybermen. Uh, it features Colin Baker oh, as Doctor Who, uh, and that's being released by Big Finish on the 31st of August. Uh, yeah, so check that out. And there are other things coming up as well. Correct. He's up to a few more things, isn't he, which we're going to find out in the next instalment of his interview. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's very exciting. Busy, busy, busy. We wrap up this episode. I think we have a line to pick up, don't we? Oh God, yeah, yes. we do now. We do yeah, now. Ideas. Oh, Let's know. have it again. Let's have it again. Inspiration. Mm. Okay, Doctor, our races have become tired and defeat. Our seed is thin. We must hand the baton of progress to others. So it, it's it's definitely Peter Davison. <laughs> no, it's Colin Baker. Oh, it's Colin Baker. <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> yes, it's Colin. It's Colin. Um. Our race. I mean, who who is it? I mean, let's, is let's it, go through the story. I've got a feeling. Go on. I've got a. Is it Mysterious Planet? No. Oh. Is it? Is it Trial? Season twenty-two. It's season twenty-two. Oh, of course, right. we should have known this. Then it's it's it's, right. it's not Mark oh, of the Run. I'll give you a clue. Yeah. It's probably the character takes off his glasses before he gives his line. <laughs> Greg, st- steal yourself. He removes his glasses. Takes off his specs before he blows them out. Oh, I. Oh, God. There's so, only one character I can think of that wears glasses. And that he is. That's Thingy in um, uh, Mr. Popplewick. It wears glasses, doesn't it? No, it's season 22. Oh, season Not 20- season 23. Sorry. Sorry, I'm getting confused. Season 22. Just to reiterate, just to clarify, this is season 22 we're talking yes. about here. So, Doctor Who. Yes. Season 22. Colin Baker. 1985. Yeah. <laughs> it's not Mark of the Rye. No. There's no line that could possibly be like that. It's no. not Time Lash because I've asked that before. Yes. I don't think it's Revelation. Right. Is it Revelation? No. <laughs> I think it... Is it The Two Doctors? Oh, I should know that. He's a relative. He is. <laughs> Lawrence oh, Payne. Lawrence Payne. <laughs> what, what, where does that line come in? What's he the context? Delivered to, to Troughton's Doctor. Uh, Talking about Carts and Rhino. Uh, Time Lords and the uh, space station stuff. Gosh, our seed is thin. I've never noticed yeah. that before. No, I've never. It's got weak semen, Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that one, buddy. You're welcome. Thank you for that easy one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mm. So, uh, uh, that's all for now. We'll be seeing ah. you in the next exciting episode of Doc 2. Meanwhile, the erstwhile tones of Keth McCulloch are creeping in the background. Oh, yes, I can oh, hear God. them. I can hear them now in my mind's eye. Yes. For a whole week. Drowning. Actually, it's two weeks. So we'll see you in a fortnight's time. Uh, so that's all from us. The new triumvirate, which is Doctor Who. And the complete menagerie. Oh, oh. Excellent. If you enjoyed listening to that twaddle, you can follow us on Twitter at DW Menagerie. That's at DW Menagerie, and we'll be tweeting various photographs of our inside leg measurements and that sort of thing. Doctor Who is copyright of the BBC. No infringements on copyright are intended. Support Doctor Who by purchasing DVDs and CDs and all other media from the BBC. Any comments made by the complete menagerie, <laughs> almost, are all our own. You've been listening to a Sixth Floor production. Oh,